0: This is Fearless Beauties, a podcast dedicated to developing voices of color in the beauty industry. We're talking to estheticians, skin specialists, and business owners to uncover best skin practices, tactical career tips, and ultimately, how we can create a better beauty industry together. I'm your host, Mary Nielsen. And I'm your other host, Taylor Phillips. This week is the last episode of season one for Fearless Beauties, and we're going to chat about multi-ethnic skin.
1: Yeah, I cannot believe this is the last episode. I know they say when you're having fun, time flies by, and that has been certainly true for this podcast. But we can't wait to tell you about the best tips and techniques for clients with mixed
0: backgrounds. Well, Taylor, let's jump into it. Doing a really thorough consultation to investigate your client's skin type is always important, but you can make bigger mistakes and have more oops, make wrong decisions when you're making treatment decisions based on your client's physical appearance, a quick glance at the Fitzpatrick scale. Your client may look like a Fitz 2, but really be a Fitzpatrick 4. I think in one of our episodes, we discussed the adverse reaction that one of the students at the aesthetic school who had Native American heritage, but had creamy white skin and black hair. Her arms look like they had been pressed in a waffle iron after an intense pulse light treatment. Well, that was early on. We are a lot better at training students to get solid intake information now. But we had a student about a year ago who has blonde hair and blue eyes, but she's half Asian. So at a glance, looking at her, she seems like she would almost be a fits one or a two, but... One of the instructors called me into the room and had me survey the students on their first day and said, one of these women is going to surprise you because their ethnicity isn't what it seems. Can you guess? And of course, I guessed her because it was, well, she was just the obvious person who wouldn't be what she seemed. And even my middle daughter has a friend named Marie, who's from Belgium, and she has white blonde hair. She married a man from Vietnam with darker skin and darker eyes. They have two kids. Their son has white blonde hair and blue eyes like his mom, and his sister has darker hair, darker skin, and almond-shaped eyes. No one ever thinks that Marie is her daughter's mom, and no one ever thinks that Kai is the little boy's dad. If you didn't do a strong consultation, you could end up over-treating your client or being more aggressive and causing skin damage— like post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation. Taylor, can you think of some other reasons why knowing ethnicity is specifically important?
1: Well, I know throughout this podcast, we have talked about the fact that knowing your client's ethnicity is way more important and beneficial to their skin health than the color of their skin. Those two examples you just shared are proof of that. Other than the proper treatments to use, your client's cultural history, the diseases and disorders they're prone to, And their personal preferences, such as using plant-based natural products, opposed to medical-grade products, they're all important and based on your client's ethnicity. If an SD knows that these characteristics are significant in their client's life, they can ask questions to better understand how to approach their skin while respecting their culture. So getting past the color of their skin and into their cultural specifications could really help SDs develop a treatment plan to avoid common disorders that correlate with certain ethnicities. So Mary, why would you say that investigating your client's skin type is specifically so important for multi-ethnic clients?
0: Well, I think that there's key questions that SDs need to ask to ensure they understand their client's correct skin type. In addition to doing a visual exam to determine if the client has oily, dry, combination-sensitive skin, they need to ask about lifestyle issues and also about ethnicity. But Taylor, I know some practitioners feel really concerned and feel uncomfortable asking clients about ethnicity and worried that they're going to be perceived as being discriminatory or racist. So can you give some good examples of ways that STs can talk to their clients about ethnicity?
1: First, I think it's important to be comfortable personally, having the knowledge and also being able to communicate it effectively is imperative because it's one thing to be nervous about being perceived as discriminatory or racist, but still knowledgeable. And then it's another thing to be completely uneducated and come off as ignorant or just confused. So for an educated and inclusive esthetician, you could approach your client by saying, Hey, your ethnicity, your background, it plays a huge part in your overall skin health. So in order for us to reach your skin goals and reach them logically and safely, it's really important for me to learn more about your ethnicity. So let's talk a little bit about your cultural background. So after the client tells you that information, you will have a somewhat clear path already in mind because based on their answer, you will know common diseases and disorders, recommended treatment plans, etc. Also, if you feel uncomfortable at first asking about their ethnicity, tell them yours and how you treat your skin based on your cultural background and not just the color of your skin. That way, your client can understand in a different way why you're asking them that question. It also helps to give them some information about you so that they aren't the only ones being vulnerable. It feels more like friends talking opposed to an interview.
0: Well, because we're such a melting pot of cultures, the availability of fast food, ethnic restaurant popularity in social media, and then that whole fusion culinary experience, food and nutrition are another really important area to dig into in the consultation. When I first moved to the Pacific Northwest, my next-door neighbors were from India. And in India, Nazanin was a nurse practitioner. She was really skilled in child delivery. But when she got to the United States, her education wasn't recognized, and so she chose to come to work at the same hospital where I was working, but she was working as a medical assistant rather than go back to school to get her education in the United States. And she had a husband and a daughter, and they ate Indian food that she prepared for all of their meals. They never ventured out and tried American food or really any other kind of food, no Italian food, no burgers, no, no nothing. And so when my youngest daughter was in college, her college roommate was from China, and she grew up in San Francisco's Chinatown. And she was never really exposed to American food either until she got to college. She was just like, yum, 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 all of these burgers and fries and pizza. But that was like over 10 years ago. And I think our cultures have really blended so much more. So ethnic diets are trendy, but they aren't necessarily authentic. Meals that have traditionally been filled with antioxidant-rich vegetables are replaced with calorie-rich fast foods that are sort of pseudo-ethnic. So clients are contending with obesity, diabetes, cardiac disease from this nutritional shift, I think. So many diet issues become visible on the skin. Lactose intolerance, gluten intolerance, nightshades, even more. I've been doing, you know, as I've talked about before, a lot of work on nutrition in the skin. And I've learned so much about specific foods as well as the nutrients.
1: Yeah, I would say social media plays such a huge part in allowing people to feel comfortable trying new things, especially if it's trendy. That's one thing about social media that I love. It highlights new things, but it could also be a curse. So, for example, the whole Popeye's chicken sandwich trend Everyone and they mama had to get that sandwich with no care in the world how unhealthy it was. It's FOMO, fear of missing out. People don't want to miss out on what is popular. You will have ethnicities that grew up eating a certain way in the line at Popeyes just because it's what they see others doing. And correct me if I'm wrong, Mary, but then those clients go see an esthetician wondering why their skin has turned against them. You ask them about lifestyle questions and now it's like, wow, yeah, I think my diet has changed. That's probably why I have acne all over my face.
0: (laughs) No, people are saying, oh no, I eat clean. I eat clean while I watch their DoorDash order get delivered.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's crazy. I don't think people really understand how significant food is to their skin. Another thing is like, My grandma, she will eat fried chicken every single day if you let her. And I mean, she'll eat the collard greens with the butter in it and the fried chicken and everything fried. She loves fried foods. And as a black woman, you know, you grow up eating fried foods. That's just in our culture. But oddly for me, when I grew up like with my mom and my dad, we didn't eat fried foods like we very healthy. So when I started living with my grandma, we started eating those fried foods. And here I am getting acne all over my face. Like, it's ridiculous. So that is how I know food has a lot to do with your skin. Meanwhile, my grandma is feeling healthy as a clam out there because she's eating it all her life. I think her body's just used to it. So anyway, I feel like I just answered this question a little, but how does the cultural melting pot of the U.S. influence multi-ethnic lifestyles and diets? Why does that matter to their skin health?
0: Well... During the initial consultation, the Health History Forum does give insight into our clients' individual skin needs. We can evaluate their medications and get a glimpse of their overall health. How many medications are they on? Are they on photosensitizing medication? Do they have allergies that'll affect the choices that you're making for their treatment? Do they have a systemic disease process going on, like diabetes or autoimmune, plus that cultural background information? You know, things like lack of SPF education. But bigger issues, you know, come into play like mistrust of authorities. And then an example that actually came to me this week was that culture of shadism that exists in different ethnicities, but particularly the South Asian culture. A client could be using a skin lightening agent and have lightened their skin two or three shades. And you take a quick look and you just misclassify them because you don't realize that in their DNA, they still have that darker melanin-producing skin cells in their DNA, and they're going to react like someone who has visually darker skin. A woman who has used skin lighteners for like four years, and she showed pictures from when she started to now, her skin is lightened by probably three or four shades. It was just absolutely remarkable. Anyway, diet, nutrition is also enormously important, but those cultural factors are significant, too. You know, and another one that I learned a little bit more about this week was black women and their hair. There's a real sensitivity and a culture around that.
1: Yes, 100%, Mary. For me, I know I've said it a few times on this podcast But as a black woman, I did not grow up experiencing any type of racial injustice growing up. At least that's what I gathered. I grew up in predominantly white neighborhoods. And looking back, I didn't really notice that I was the black girl in a room full of white girls and boys. But I do remember a few times where I was asked questions about my hair. So I have long hair and my mom does as well. Well, right now, I'm in the process of dreading my hair, so I've cut a little bit off. But I've always had long, straight hair because I always got it relaxed. I remember a few times when girls would come up to me at school and ask about my hair. Oh, how many times do you wash it? Is it naturally straight like mine? Can I touch it? Like, when I would get my hair braided, they would say, well, when I get my hair braided, it doesn't stay like yours. Why is that? So it's crazy how I remember this, but thinking back on it, I was always a little sensitive about those questions. To me, we clearly have a different texture of hair. So there is no need to compare, but it's also like, wow, is this your real hair? It's so long. I've always gotten some hate from other Black women as well. Oh, is that your real hair? Yes, it is. I've also noticed that there is some sensitivity around Black women with dreads. I feel like there is a negative stereotype that you cannot take us seriously opposed to if we have long, straight hair or wavy hair, as if long, straight hair makes a woman more put together, more respected. I may be getting off topic, but there is definitely sensitivity around Black women and their hair. And I guess it also depends on who you ask. All right, Mary, let's switch gears. What are the key things that tend to affect multi-ethnic skin?
0: Well, the environment is really huge on the skin. So things like UV radiation, pollution, even rough fabrics or allergens like pollen, wind can dry out your skin, pet dander, your pillowcase and your bathroom towel, your shampoo and your toothpaste, your hands are touching your skin, spreading bacteria. You've got your cell phone pressed up against your face, your makeup brushes, If you're using a liquid foundation and you're using your hands to apply it, you've probably contaminated that whole, you know, bottle of foundation. And then we look at how medications can affect your skin. I was recently reading in my, you know, nutrition thing, that people who have rosacea and H. pylori. Now, H. pylori is a bacteria that lives in your gut and it can cause ulcers. And people who have rosacea and H. pylori... When they get treatment for those ulcers, their rosacea improves. So if you notice, you know, your client is on Prevacid or any kind of medication for heartburn, or they mention that they've had a stomach ulcer, you might think, oh, rosacea. Also, certain medications can cause sensitivity, even acne breakouts. You know, Taylor, I know Accutane or isotretinone is often prescribed for acne, but can you describe some of the side effects, especially because I know there's a lot of mental health side effects that this medication can have.
1: Yeah. So some of the side effects of Accutane are dry skin, itching, rash, dry mouth and lips, joint pain, dizziness, nervousness, and so much more. It also can cause serious birth defects such as miscarriages, premature birth, and even infant death. Mentally, Accutane is linked to suicidal thoughts and behaviors and depression in patients with no prior mental health history. So that is pretty serious. Overall, there is a significant change in both your physical and mental health.
0: When Brenna, my middle daughter, was in high school, probably junior, senior year, that's when Accutane or isotretinone first came out on the market as a drug and doctors were prescribing it like crazy, you know, acne, oh, here, have some Accutane. And her senior class had nine suicides. That was before they knew there was the mental health factor. And so I was saying, what medications are these? What is like, my girlfriend broke up with me, so I'm going to jump off the roof of the school and kill myself. It was horrible. And then Shortly after that, they came out with, now there's a national database. If you're on Accutane, you have to have pregnancy tests before you can go on it. There's mental health, it's a whole bunch of stuff. But when it first came out, it was like, oh, this is the answer to acne.
1: It's just sad that it takes suicide for people to really look into that.
0: Well, because I think they just do. No, this is for their skin. It, it like dries up their sebum and their sebaceous glands. So how would it affect their brain?
1: Moving into skin disorders and diseases, what tips would you give to estheticians to spot diseases and these disorders in multi-ethnic skin?
0: When estes are working with clients who are multi-ethnic, they really need to think outside the box and cover every base in that consultation. They need to remember key points about all ethnicities, indigenous skin and the skin breakouts that could be actinic corrigo, acne, or rosacea. Yeah, I think it's really challenging. Well, I think I've told this story, in fact, in a previous episode, but I have a friend who's black and she was experiencing some breakout issues and she went to her dermatologist. He prescribed acne medications and then she returned because it really wasn't working. And he tried several other regimens and nothing really worked. Then she ended up just in a fluke, did her 23andMe or ancestry DNA or something like that profile. And the results came back saying that she was Irish. So somewhere back in the days of slavery, her forebears had some Irish lineage. So she went to her dermatologist and she told him, I think I have rosacea. And he said, oh, that's ridiculous. Black people don't get rosacea. But she had that Celtic DNA and it became evidence in her skin. Yeah,
1: I think I remember that story, Mary, but it just amazes me how much ethnicity plays a part in skin health. It's not just black and white. You really have to know your stuff.
0: Yeah. You know, I'm not sure when we're talking about skin, is there specific disorders? Like if somebody was Asian and black, do they have specific disorders? I just think it's coming down to that blend of ethnicity and recognizing that those skin conditions That are common to all skin of color, like melasma, post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation, a greater transepidermal water loss, greater risk for keloid scarring. But if someone has the mixed ethnicity, maybe black and Latinx, some common skin conditions could be evident, and they might be different from someone who has a mixed heritage of maybe Asian and Northern European. The skincare professional really has to be almost like a magician,
1: Basically, there is no textbook or step-by-step instructions on what to do with specific blends of ethnicities. You just have to put your knowledge of one ethnicity and your knowledge of another ethnicity, mix it up in a pot, and remain mindful of the diseases and disorders that commonly affect certain ethnicities. Which brings us to the next point. What are the most common diseases and disorders for multi-ethnic clients?
0: I don't know that there's a standard combination of disorders because everyone's an individual, and their unique DNA mix is so different than anyone else's. But you have to be aware of all the ethnicities involved. You could have a mother who's half South Asian and half Black and the father who's half Indigenous and a quarter Italian and a quarter Asian and just makes our country just a multi-ethnic soup. So as estheticians, we need to just get ahead of the curve. Skin care professionals need to feel confident Treating whoever walks in their treatment room. And they need to anticipate and be prepared to treat those commonalities of PIH, melasma, tool, keloid scarring for sure, and acne.
1: Yes, that's very well said. And this is when being knowledgeable of every ethnicity comes in handy. So as we move on, how can
0: estheticians approach the treatment plan for a multi-ethnic skin? Well, when the Esty's working on the treatment plan, she needs to give some extra time and consideration to look at things from all sides. Think about diet, lifestyle, cultural background, and a solid skin analysis. There's so much to learn just from the physical exam of the skin. Cleanse the skin and then look under magnification. Look at pore size and texture. Look for pigmentation. Is the pigmentation in the pattern of melasma or sun damage? Are they oily in the T-zone or is their skin dehydrated? Look for vascularity, any broken capillaries. Look for clogged pores and blackheads and whiteheads and papules and pustules. And then look down the neck as well, around the hairline, even in the ears. Look for any suspicious lesions. I love my DermLite, a little ultramagnifier. It will magnify a hundred times. That lets me just zero in on a specific lesion and get a better idea of whether the client should get referred for a medical evaluation because it could be skin cancer or even something contagious like a wart, for example.
1: Yeah, and due to the risk of PIH, Mary, tell us about the importance of conditioning the client's skin.
0: Well, you never want to treat a problem and end up with another problem. So multi-ethnic skin is going to be prone to PIH, post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation, So you want to take the long view and move very systematically, conditioning the skin like you're training for a marathon. So
1: like always we say, it's a more progressive approach rather than aggressive. And Mary, what is acid mantle balance? How can aggressive treatments affect it and provide potential problems with the client's barrier function?
0: Well, aggressive treatments can disrupt the skin's pH or that healthy balance on the skin's biome. The inflammatory process then gets initiated and the immune system gets out of whack and bacteria, the bad kind, can get in or on the surface of the skin, it gets things got a balance with hydration and become dry and irritated because of that transepidermal water loss. Sometimes then the sebaceous glands are going to kick into high gear and they begin overproducing oil to help relieve the dryness, but then the bacteria has already had a chance to work and then boom, an acne trigger. And, just bringing up food again, I was reading about how researchers are looking into the effect of chocolate on the skin, and they think that chocolate changes the bacterial mix on the skin, and that's why chocolate can cause an acne breakout. That gut-skin connection is just fascinating for me.
1: <sighs> Did you say chocolate? Because, please, no. <laughs> the amount of peanut M&Ms I eat is so embarrassing, which is probably why my skin is turning on me, Mary. It's, it's pretty bad. <laughs> Now, a question that I'm interested to know the answer to, why is it so important to see the client in two weeks after the initial appointment?
0: Well, my routine was to spend time in the consultation, really working to find a connection. Personally, I was looking for some way that I had something in common with my client. I liked learning about their personal lives, their daily routine, And it really helped me to think of them and how busy their lives were to get an understanding of how much time they had to commit to their skincare. A busy mom who's working and she has two or three kids at home that she has to get up, get ready for school, take to gay care, then get herself to work. Maybe she's working as a dental assistant, then come home, take care of the kids, fix dinner, homework, laundry, piano, lesson, soccer practice. She's not going to have the same luxury or the same budget even to work with as a single empty nester who also has to get up and get herself to work. But then after work, she can join her girlfriends for a happy hour. Anyway, once I could visualize my clients in their daily routine, then I would go over their health history and ask them some questions. Sometimes the same questions that they'd already answered on their form, but I wanted them to explain it to me in a little better detail. So let's say, so your allergies, tell me about what happens. Then we put a big red sticker on the front of their record with their allergies listed so that could double check that I wasn't applying, for example, a salicylic acid peel to someone who is allergic to aspirin. Anyway, then I would cleanse their face. I would look at their skin in magnification. I would feel it. I would ask them questions. Oh, you have some pigmentation here. When did this start? Or I see some broken capillaries. Or you have this tiny scar. Where did that come from? Then I would take them to the photo room where we had this digital photo system. And we have a digital photo system here at the school as well. So students learn how to take those digital pictures in several different wavelengths of light. And that was big because a picture's worth a thousand words. When I first got that photo system, I spent over $20,000 on it. But I have three of them here at the school, and I paid less for the three than I did for the first one I ever bought. So technology has made some progress. Okay, back out of that rabbit hole, taking the client's picture, and then go through each photo in this series. I could point out your pore size, your fine lines, your texture. Then at that same time, I could talk about their home skincare routine and why that's so important, and then get them started on home skincare, have them return in two weeks. That two weeks of home skincare begins to condition their skin for any kind of treatments that I'm going to perform, but also they're more committed to using that skincare every single day. So getting them on a melanin suppression, a good cleanser, a toner, a serum, they were eager to get started, very committed. And when they returned, I could take their photos again. And every single time there would be changes, improvements to their skin. It made them really excited. And then we could get started on some kind of professional series. But that two weeks gave me some time to really think about what kind of plan I want to put together that would be best for their skin. So then I might present to them, well, I'd like to do this. I'd like to do a chemical peel series, or I'd like to start with a chemical peel and then alternate with a laser session, or I'd like to do a microdermabrasion. How do you feel about that? Also asking, do you have any big events coming up before we even get started? Then every time they came in taking photos, every single visit would help them see the progress but it also helped me make decisions about what was gonna be the next step because sometimes I think, oh, I'm a little disappointed. They don't seem to be progressing as quickly as I'd like. I'm gonna shift how I'm doing my routine or the treatments that I'm going to perform. And sometimes I could still see some redness in their photos. On the surface, the skin looked healed, but then when the camera with the wavelength of light that would show their redness, I could see they had this microscopic redness Their face was still in the healing process from their previous treatment. So today I would say, well, today we're not going to move forward with a more aggressive treatment. We're just going to do something soothing and calming to your skin so that your skin can kind of continue to heal and do its thing. Taylor, what are some ways that estheticians can build trust and track progress with their clients?
1: Well, first, I love that answer, Mary. It really shows how seasoned you are in this SD business. And you really care about everything your clients do. I just love how you said visualize your client's daily routine because it's more than just their skin. It's who they are. It's their hobbies. And I think it helps build a connection with them in other ways that allows you both to feel comfortable during the process. And I think that helps build trust. Like I mentioned earlier, asking your client questions about their daily activities and even finding some commonalities and expressing how you like to do the same things allows the consultation and other treatments going forward to be more comfortable. And in regards to tracking progress, I think it's a good idea to take mental notes and then write them down after the client leaves. Notes about what they like to do, their family life, daily routine, because when they come back and you evaluate their skin, you can compare their skin's progress to their daily lives. So maybe they enjoy bike riding for 10 miles on the weekends. Hashtag goals. I'm sure that can affect their skin, but by you knowing that they like to bike, you can say, hey, how was bike riding this weekend? How far did you bike? Did you remember to wear your sunscreen? Instead of them having to reiterate what they've told you before, that can build trust and help you track progress by knowing exactly what to look for once your client arrives.
0: Today's key points are taking time and asking the right questions so you can find the best solutions for your clients' issues. I also think it's being bold and learning to ask the right questions, including the right way to introduce talking about ethnicity and why it's important.
1: Yes, I completely agree. So I would say my key points are not to treat a client by their skin color, but by the characteristics of their ethnicity. Take time to learn about their cultural background and focus on making those conversations and consultations comfortable and necessary. Be intentional with your questions, ask about their lifestyle, diet, etc., because that plays a huge part in their skin health journey. Lastly, find some commonalities between you and the client to make the relationship more organic and not like an interview. That helps to build trust and alerts to the clients that they're in a
0: safe space. Thank you for listening to Fearless Beauties, a show dedicated to elevating voices of color in the beauty industry. We'll be back with season two in the fall. I'm your host, Mary Nielsen. And I'm your
1: other host, Taylor Phillip. Until next time, the fall, keep educating yourself. Remember to stay open and be fearless in the pursuit of creating a better, more inclusive world.
0: If you've enjoyed today's episode, please rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. Special thanks to my co-host Taylor. I look forward to talking with you in the fall and to our producers at Quill Inc. You guys are amazing.